0: Hey everybody, this is Robin Moradis, the director of the North Carolina Lawyer Assistance Program. Today I'm joined by Lynn Garston, a healthcare lawyer out of Georgia. She's the chair of the lawyer assistance program of the State Bar of Georgia, and she's a mental health advocate. Lynn, thanks for being with us today.
1: My pleasure. Very happy to be here.
0: And just to tell our listening audience, the way that we met when Chesley Christ died by suicide. The state bar wanted to include an article around that topic and ask me for recommendations. And I had been forwarded your article that you wrote. It's in the show notes. I had been forwarded your article from one of our volunteers several months ago, maybe even longer now. And it's a handout that we use in our suicide prevention continuing legal education program. So it's a great resource, and everybody's going to be reading it in North Carolina, so I want to center our discussion around that article, and can you tell us what was going on for you in November of 2007?
1: Oh, it was a banner year. Um, It was the bottom of my life, really, uh, for reasons that I won't go into in much detail, but subsequent to a divorce and some of the fallout from that. Uh, I just started on a really downhill path and I got to the point where I could neither eat nor breathe nor sleep and when I say breathe I know everybody's had it one or another time that feeling that there's a stone sitting on your chest and, and you just can't move it you can just get light breaths and that went on for six months so uh you know, people, I had wonderful friends, they would try to raise me up and I would slide down that side of that glacier every day for six months.
0: Well, unlike many lawyers, you actually sought help at the time. A lot of lawyers ignore, but you were trying to get some help. What kinds of things did you do at that time?
1: I did everything I could think think of. I did a vision quest. There was a Native American woman owned a side of a mountain. So I go up, little me, on the vision quest. You had to stay in three meters circle, couldn't go out of that and she would bring a little bit of food but otherwise you weren't supposed to eat and you were supposed to have a vision which i never had but i sat there and looked at the clouds and they were beautiful i know right no no visions was so no animals visited me you know no totems nothing like that i did hypnotism I went to traditional therapy. I did everything. Medi- oh, medication. You know, we could talk about medication all day long. I will just say that having been on 32 different psych meds in about as many years, I have concluded that for me, this is not a chemical imbalance. It's just, mm-hmm. I have maladaptive coping skills that grew from a, a childhood that had a lot of challenges. And that, that's the tree grew a little bit broken. For others, I do not challenge that there are chemical imbalances that medications work for. And for me, whatever works is the greatest thing in the world.
0: That's interesting. I'm going to deviate from the questions I had scripted. And I'm going to ask you about maladaptive coping mechanisms because I suspect they are the very things that probably helped you succeed in law.
1: Mm. That's an interesting perspective. I never really thought about it that way. Partly, um, the first thing that comes to mind is turning inward, never outward, but always turning inward. Worrying a lot that I wasn't good enough, that I wasn't worthy, that I wasn't accomplished enough, low, low self-esteem, which led me to people talk about sort of the hole in your soul kind of thing. The way I filled it was with food. That was my principal maladaptive coping skill. And boy, was it maladaptive. And it has dogged me my entire life. Better now, you know, better now than ever, but that was one, you know, we always talk about lawyers, like not wanting to seek help, that kind of thing. I did talk to my friends. I did do that. My biggest issue was that I had a no-talk family and that was a problem.
0: Well, let me ask you, this goes back to the questions I had planned to ask you. Did you talk to any of your colleagues at the time about what was happening? Anyone at your law firm?
1: You know, Robin, it's been very interesting to me. At that time, I was in Virginia working at Centera Healthcare. It's a big health system in what the area they call Hampton Roads. And I had a colleague that knew what was going on. The general counsel did not know what was going on. I will tell you, it was so bad that I would lie down on the floor with my feet to the door so nobody could come in because we didn't have locks on the doors and just try to breathe and then i'd get up and i'd just keep on trucking keep on drafting another contract close another deal and so no only the one person knew and she was a kind soul and she knew that i didn't want anyone else to know so she didn't tell anyone now later after i had been in recovery and worked with my current group when i wrote southern vapors which was the recovery memoir about this journey I'd only worked there for about a year, but I had put my head down and I'd shown that I was a team player and wasn't gonna cause any problems. And I was gonna publish that book no matter what the blowback was. But I went around to all 17 or so people on the team and I said, you see this book, held it up. See the name on this book? What name is that? Yep, that's my name. Let me tell you what this book is about because I of course thought I was going to be famous. (laughs) It didn't happen. I thought every client in the world is gonna see that name. And to a person, they were supportive and three quarters of them came to my book launch. It was phenomenal.
0: That's nice. That's wonderful. Well, back to 2007, you were talking about sort of marching on and I know you closed two deals simultaneously on December 31st of 2007. Uh, let's talk for a minute about the double-edged sort of what you call fierce tenacity. Mm, yeah, fierce tenacity is what allowed me
1: to close those deals. You know, I, I walked and I don't know how. I could barely see. But somehow I was able to still function at work and I did, you know, it's a lot to close one deal because deals always have issues at the end and it get ramps up very fast. Two of them. So yeah, fierce tenacity kept me practicing at a high level. I just, I didn't allow anything to interfere. It is that same fierce tenacity that didn't let me just stop and say, time out. I can't do this. I cannot do this. I'm suffering. I'm going to die if I do this. I just wouldn't do it. I did not do that until I was so close to the brink that I was, I had scared myself. Well, tell us, what was your wake up call? It was, you know, I guess it can be as simple as this, but I said all those months I was doing very poorly. And one day I drove down the street, we have a Harris Teeter or they do up there in Virginia. It's a really good grocery store. And I was driving down the street towards the Harris Teeter and I saw a car coming towards me. And I had the conscious thought that if that car turned its wheel and came into my lane onward towards my car, I wouldn't move my wheel. And I thought about having had that thought, you know, I reflected on it and it terrified me because I didn't have a plan to take my life. I didn't have a schedule or a date or, or tools or anything, but I was getting close. Yeah. And that terrified me. So what happened? Well, I was lucky. I was very lucky, I said a little earlier, I had a no talk family and that was true. But I had a wonderful brother. And when they had come, the family had come to town, I had a child who was graduating from high school and we were all in a hotel together. And I went, I remember it, I can remember sitting down on his bed and flopping over because I couldn't even sit up at that point. And telling him, I am I said three words, I think it's three, I'm not okay. And he said, I know you're not. Because uh, they had noticed I'd lost tons of weight. I don't think I was even aware of it. That is such an indicator that something is going on, unless there's a, a another kind of reason, you know, health reason for it but i really needed that help so desperately at that point we had a common area where we would all gather to celebrate and talk uh, about the graduation and i would spend a certain amount of time in there and then i would have to go lie under the sink in my bathroom in a ball just to regroup to be able to go out there and with that quote fierce tenacity pretend that everything was okay and that i was you know the hostess with the mostest
0: what ended up happening i know you went to inpatient treatment for mental health issues
1: i did i went to the retreat at shepherd pratt it's right near baltimore it's a very fine facility i was very very lucky to get in there and it's the kind of place where they throw a lot of mud at the wall. So they had equine therapy, they had art therapy, they had talk therapy, they had group therapy. You walked through nature therapy, uh, DBT if people know what that is, dialectic behavioral therapy. Uh, and it was that was a good thing. It was good for me.
0: Well, you capture so well the shock and fury that many lawyers experience at hearing the news that recovery is a process and not an event. (laughs) Can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Yes, I can. So three weeks into that program at Shepherd Pratt, uh, I cried for the first three weeks. I don't know how I thought that I was gonna be better so fast. I cried every day for the first three weeks that I was there. Finally, after three weeks, I was able to settle down and actually do some of the work, but it's at the three-week point that they give you a prognosis. And mine, which was from, I think the assistant director, I was lucky that he was my therapist, um, was fair to good with ongoing intensive treatment. (laughs) And I looked at him and I said, what does ongoing intensive treatment mean? And he said therapy three to four times a week. And I swear I almost hit him. (laughs) I really I looked at him and I said, are you kidding? You know, I don't know if people remember the movie MASH where they talk about the pros from Dover you know, when they're playing golf. I I was like, you're the pros from Dover. You're the experts. You're going to fix me and you're going to do it fast. So I was there for a sum total of 10 weeks, which was nothing compared to how long it took me to get that sick. But in my mind,
0: who could stay away from work longer than that? So that was it. You know, recovery is a process and it's a journey. And a lot of times experiences like this help us get ready to do the real recovery. So what happened for you? When did your real commitment to your own recovery finally really start to take root? Well, I
1: did not pay attention to that prognosis in the slightest. In fact, I think I got a little rebellious. I remember taking my sweet time. I'd moved back to Atlanta um, in the interim, and I took my sweet time finding any kind of therapist at all. And after six months, maybe I found somebody and I thought they were okay. And I went maybe once a week or something. And then I think I changed to somebody, Uh, I'm still with her, she's wonderful. But by that time, I had started to unravel. And I was, again, doing very, very poorly. And again, I was afraid. And I had a, a psychiatrist at the time, I still was taking meds at that time. And she knew the director of a facility in this area. I don't ever name the facility because I write about some of the experiences in that book. And she referred me there and they took me in. And I want to tell you, it was something. It was the opposite of the nice facility I'd been in in Baltimore. There was literally a getaway car driver there. I'm talking to this guy. What do you? Oh, well, I'm... drove the getaway car and they caught me and you know like my eyes are like saucers and i'm like you know people got in fights people went after each other with forks Uh, i'll never forget this other lady we're at the lunch table somebody tries to go after somebody with a fork and we sort of wrestle them down and she said yeah i knew you were going to help and i'm thinking what on earth made you so sure that little Susie Cream Cheese over here was going to be able to help with with that? Uh, but in that facility, what really turned the tide is an interesting thing. The lead therapist, the the director of the facility, uh, said at a family uh, you know, they have family conferences that I would never work again. And I should apply for social security disability. Mm, That had to be a huge blow. Oh, yes, it was. And I believe in doctors. I've always believed that they're educated. They know more than I know, right? Well, I, I believed that at the time. And I thought he must be right with part of my brain. With the other part of my brain, I started applying for jobs. (laughs) So, and I did, I did actually apply for social security disability. It was the hardest thing I ever did to hit enter on that application. I did, I got rejected. Everybody gets rejected the first time. I mean, I'm in the know about these things, Um, but I did, I also got a contract job at a good firm in Atlanta and, That was the beginning of my recovery. And what was truly the beginning was that I then took responsibility for my own recovery. And I didn't care what that man had said to me. In fact, as time went on, I would listen judiciously to what anybody had to say to me. But in the ultimate analysis, I made up my own mind what was better for me and what was gonna help me get well. And that's worked very well for me, but it's a long road to get there.
0: So you talked about taking responsibility for your own recovery. What do you think is the difference between whatever therapeutic tools you were looking at and trying to employ in 2007 and what you do today? Can you articulate for the listening audience? And I know I'm asking you a challenging question is, can you articulate what the internal shift was for you?
1: it's not it's very funny because it's I have a perfect example that pops right into my mind so when I'm at the retreat at shepherd pratt I keep saying to the lead therapist I can't do this I can't do this I can't do this and he's like you're the only person who can do this I can't I can't I can't well as I said we had art therapy as part of our therapy And I went down there and they had an enormous box for supplies or something, but this one happened to be empty. And I took it up there with me to my next therapy appointment with him. And I got in the box, swear, I swear this is a true story. And I would not get out of the box until he extended his hand to help me. (laughs) that's a metaphor for the fact that I could not help myself and I required somebody else's help. I didn't believe it for a second. I thought that all my life I'd been trying and trying and trying and I couldn't do it. I just couldn't do it. And the fact of the matter is I never really faced the hard truths about what it was going to take and some of the things I would have to accept Mm
0: -hmm. For example,
1: I always thought I would get quote better. I would be quote cured. I came to accept, no, I'm not cured. I'll never be cured. That's okay. I'm in recovery and I'll always be in recovery and my life is great. But I will not be cured. I have certain vulnerabilities and sometimes they get triggered. Sometimes they don't. If they get triggered, I've got help. I know what to do. I haven't gone so far down the rabbit hole since 2010. Um, But that was a hard truth for me to accept. I never, ever thought that this wouldn't be over until I did.
0: It requires a reprioritization of things, I think. And I think that's what lawyers find so difficult because we always want to prioritize work and our reputation and our standing in the community. And to put self-care first means maybe we're not going to go do that charitable event or maybe means we need to take some time off. Was there reprioritization for you?
1: A hundred percent. And what I say now is very simple. My mental health is non-negotiable. And it is 100% true. I have actually gone to my firm, to partners in the firm twice since, I don't know, maybe 2014 or 15 and said, you need to take me off of this project. I was driving to work. That was in the days when I didn't work remotely. And I was shaking and crying and I know what that means. That means that I'm in trouble and I need to step back and I'm under too much pressure and you need to take me off the project both times they did. And part of that is I, as I said, from the beginning, I put my head down, I did my work, I've got credibility, I've developed relationships, that doesn't happen in a vacuum, that kind of support. But once you have built that, that, those relationships, at least for me, that the support has been available. But I have to tell you, even if it weren't, I stand by the fact that my mental health is non-negotiable and if I had to go, I would have gone. Good for you. Well, I mean, it's a function of having been all the way to the bottom. There was there's no more bottom for me to go and still be on this planet. So, once you go there, you get real aware of of certain priorities.
0: Well, you have this beautiful sentence that's so telling where you write, the absence of existential hope is not something anyone else can cure. And you've already talked a little bit about that experience with the first therapist about this, I can't, I can't, but it's double-edged. It it applies not only to our own responsibility for our own recovery, but a lot of well-meaning friends and family want to offer existential hope. Can you speak a little bit about that? It's
1: the saddest thing in the world because, you know, families, mothers, fathers, I've watched it over and over and over, and they want desperately to help their children. In this case, I'll I'll just talk about parents and children. They would do anything. They would do it for them if they absolutely, if they could. They can't. They literally cannot. No one else can do this work. Nobody I don't care how well intentioned you are. I don't care how driven you are. No one else can do this work. This is internal work. And it's the only way that someone can change and you have to want to do it yourself. No one can make you do it. When I was at Shepherd Pratt, which should cost a pretty penny, there were a number of people who just laid in their bed. They would not even get out of bed to come to group therapy. And you know, there are people like that and, and they had either spouses or, or family that were so desperate to get them help that they paid this and they checked them in, but they were not at the place yet where they were willing to do the work. And it's the saddest thing, but it's just true that no one else can do it for you.
0: And this is in all arenas, you know, substance use disorder, mental health, suicidal ideation, I mean, it makes sense if you step back and think about it. If Did anyone
1: ever change your mind? No. (laughs) Somebody maybe said something and you were sort of almost there and you thought, huh, that's a good idea. You changed your mind. They didn't change your mind. We all, you know, we're self-contained vessels here. And it's, it's the fact of the matter. I wish it were different. I wish that I could make the difference for, for some people. You do want to do it for people and it hurts when you can't, but you can't.
0: Well, and you are a mental health advocate and your article offers guidance for friends and family. What guidance would you have for someone who may be friend or family of someone who's seriously clinically depressed? There are a couple
1: of things. One is adjust your expectations. I've been around people frequently who think, even you know, if even if you get to the point where somebody's willing to go to rehab or to a hospital, people think, oh, that's it. They're done. They'll be back in three to five days. Oh. They'll be cured. They'll be cured. Yeah, it'll be fine adjust your expectations. I was at Shepherd Pratt, a very fine facility for 10 weeks. It was nothing. It was, a, it takes so long to rebuild an infrastructure. First of all, to dismantle the old one, to accept that you need to do that, to raise it to the ground and to build something in its place in your psyche, that takes a minute. So I would say really, really lower your expectations because I've hardly met a parent or friend who hasn't had their hopes dashed in this arena. They're always hoping for something and it doesn't come to fruition. It's because this is a rough road and just know that it's a long road. Do not think that this is a short journey. If somebody's lucky, yes, that would be wonderful. But my experience is that this is a long journey and it is not a linear journey in any sense of the word. It's one step forward, one to the side, one catty corner, one over here, up, one more forward. I have a therapist, the therapist who describes it a little differently, but I like this too. It's like a spiral. And sometimes the things that you're dealing with are at the top of the spiral and they're front and center. Sometimes those things are all the way at the bottom and you can't even work with them because you can't get your arms around it. They're, they're, they're buried at that moment and things cycle up and they cycle down. And that's another way to look at it. It's similar to saying that it's, it's not linear. It is totally not linear. I used to think it's like you get on an airplane, the airplane goes up, it levels off. That's the recovery. No, not so much.
0: There's a funny meme. I'll try to link to it in the show notes and I'll send it to you where it says other people's spiritual journey and it shows someone kind of running up the side of a mountain plateauing a little bit and then running up the side of a mountain it says my spiritual journey and it's like a vortex of spaghetti and the person is being sucked down in the middle of it it's very funny i love it very funny i love it when
1: you find me the person that's climbing the mountain i'd like to meet them is there anything we haven't
0: talked about that you think we should discuss
1: just what's going on in the moment, two years into COVID, how people are coping, what's going on. The sense that I'm getting, and I sort of have my hands in a few different pies, people are ranging anywhere from suffering to struggling. Struggling is the best you can hope for. Suffering, out and out suffering, is a lot of people are suffering right now. And I think that this is a moment where it's pretty ripe for people to open their arms to getting help. I think so many people are burned out. And burnout is something that we're all familiar with. You don't have to get into the nomenclature of depression and anxiety and bipolar and all that. Burnout is something that everyone can understand. Everybody's burned out. If it were just two years of COVID alone, we'd be burned out. But you start layering on top, you know, kids at home, elderly parents, uh, your own infirmity along with COVID, work pressures, work at all hours of the day and night now that there's no boundary and people are sending you emails at 11 p.m. and expecting an answer. People, I think, need to acknowledge, that's the first step, is acknowledge that this is happening and then accept the fact that it is not for the good and that steps need to be taken to correct our course. Whatever that means for you and and for institutions and firms and organizations, but this ship needs to get turned around.
0: Well, thank you, Lynn. Thank you so much for joining us today.
1: You know, I love this. I'm so happy to be able to have talked with you and I'm always available. If somebody hears something on here and they want to talk to me, just shoot them my way.
0: Will do. Thanks again. Thank you. Thank you for joining us at The Sidebar. If this is your first time, we encourage you to listen to another episode or two, subscribe to our newsletter, and peruse the resources at www.nclap.org. And if you know a lawyer who could use a hand, please share this episode with them today. Remember, at Sidebar, you are not alone. In fact, you are in quite good company.